Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of July 27th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Ride with Pride, Western Airs, Unveil Fun Routines at Annual Western Heritage Day Shows by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Jefferson County kicks off two-year updates of five-year plans and regulations by Teddy Jacobson for the Golden Transcript. Arvada City Council passes 3.5% trash hauling fee increase, opt-outs included. Arvada residents to pay more for trash hauling, including those who don't use city's service. By Lillian Fuglet and Ryan Dunn, Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. We Ridge Farmer's Market and Incubator for Local Small Businesses by Joe Davis for the Jeffco Transcript and following up with various articles. Ride with Pride. Western Airs unveil fun routines at annual Western Heritage Day shows by Corinne Westman. Whether they were dressed as gummy bears, Mario Kart racers, or Disney characters, the Western Airs made sure everyone was enjoying Western Heritage Day. About 500 Western Airs and adult volunteers hosted four performances July 19th for the annual event celebrating the National Day of the American Cowboy. The Western Airs showcased a variety of mounted and ground routines, from trick riding and interpretive dancing to whips and batons. Outside the arena at Fort Western Air, which is adjacent to the Jefferson County Fairgrounds, attendees tried roping and stick horse riding and stopped by the petting zoo, among other activities. The Golden-based organization, which was founded in 1949 and has about 1,000 members aged 9 to 19, has hosted Western Heritage Day shows for almost 20 years. The event draws a lot of summer camps and families. So the performers put together silly, crowd-pleasing routines the younger attendees will enjoy, volunteer instructor Karen Kronage explained. The performers described how, while it's a long day that requires tons of preparation and behind-the-scenes work, it's worth it to see the smiles on people's faces. I love seeing the kids' faces light up, said Jenna Lamb, who's 18, who's performed in the event three years now. Quinn Owen, 15, said this was only her second Western Heritage Day, and writing in performances like this can be nerve-wracking. However, the Westerners have practiced their routines so many times now that it's basically muscle memory, she said. We practice these drills so much they get nailed into our brains. Owen said. The organization has several performance teams like the Crimson Rangers and the Royal Rangers. Each developed its own routine around a unique theme, ranging from Star Wars to the Easter Bunny. Western airs on multiple performance teams have to do quick changes between routines. Emery King, 14, described how she'd be changing three times per show. She was performing with the Star Wars themed base team, 
the Easter Bunny themed Liberty Team, and the Mario Kart themed Kart Team. People don't always see all the hard work that goes into it, King said of the Western Heritage Day shows. She encouraged young people to sign up for the Westerners, saying they don't have to own a horse or have even ever ridden one to join. The organization is about teaching young people responsibility, discipline, and leadership, she and others commented. Lamb, Owen, and King said the Westerners practice about 10 hours a week, depending on the time of year. Along with taking care of the horses they own or rent, they do drills, diagram their routines, study equestrian safety, and more. As with extracurriculars, other extracurriculars, the three said Westerners has taught them good time management, they described, as they juggle those commitments with their schoolwork. Lamb, who graduated from high school this spring, will also graduate from Westerners this fall. Her final performance will be at the October 28th, 29th Horsecapades annual fundraising show. I'm a bit sad, but I'm also ready to move on, Lamb said, adding that she's considering returning as a volunteer instructor. Overall, the Westerners said the organization has a family atmosphere where everybody knows and encourages each other. The riders learn about teamwork and communication with their horses and with each other, as King Kronauj King and Kronauj explained. It's about developing good habits, King continued. Jefferson County kicks off two-year update of five plans and regulations. Teddy Jacobson. Jefferson County officials are looking to shake things up over the next two years. A long list of county plans will be reevaluated and potentially updated. Everything from wildfire evacuation to transportation policies are on the table in what's dubbed Together Jeffco. The county's comprehensive master plan, community wildfire protection plan, comprehensive emergency management plans, evacuation annex, transportation master plans, and land use code are among the plans that could be updated. The goal of this project, announced in July, is to redesign land use, plan for evacuations, and to align transportation policies and goals with goals, according to the county's website. County representatives said the process should provide a cohesive vision for the future of the county and identify priorities for addressing growth, regulations, and services. One of our goals is to help streamline our process and become more efficient as we work together to help articulate our community vision for Jefferson County. Jefferson County Development and Transportation Director Abel Montoya said in a recent press release. The county is currently evaluating plans, reviewing existing conditions, and developing a process to include the public in its decision-making. This phase is anticipated to conclude in August of this year, according to the county's website. The following phases involve multiple stages of drafting, plans, and regulations. The county anticipates this process to be completed by July 2024. Public review of the land use code is expected for December of 2024 and public hearings in early 2025. The county anticipates the project to take 18 to 24 months with adoption of the other four plans planned for the October of 2024. Residents can get involved with the drafting process through public workshops, surveys, and open houses over the next two years by visiting Together Jeffco website, 
TogetherJeffCo.com. Arvada City Council passes 3.5% trash hauling fee increase. Opt-outs included. Arvada residents to pay more for trash hauling, including those who don't use city service. By Lillian Fugle and Riley Dunn. Arvada City Council has voted to increase trash hauling fees by 3.5%. This increase applies to all fees, including the minimum service fee, and is effective August 1st. The increase passed 5-1 at the July 17th meeting with John Marriott's voting no and Mark Williams absent. Though the increase passed, discussion before the vote focused on the negative impacts of the price change, especially the minimum service fee, which is charged to residents who opt out of the city's program in favor of coordinating with their own trash hauler. Prior to the vote, Marriott explained that he chose to vote no because he believes those who do not utilize the city service should not be subject to price increases. What gets me into my no vote is the fee that people are paying to not do business with Republic Services, Marriott said during the re-meeting. To have that go up as a cost for inflation, there's certainly no inflation in not doing business with somebody. The city's contract with Republic Service Services requires that anytime trash hauling prices increase, all fees increase by 3.5%, meaning that the minimum service fee must increase along with the other service fees. The price increases are to be triggered by market conditions, including comparisons to other tra local trash haulers and inflation. At the, end of two, at the end of years two through six of this agreement, contractor, Republic, shall have the ability to increase the charges for residential collection service, the contract states. During this option period, the city will consider an adjustment to the pricing structure. Any price adjustments shall not exceed the amount being passed on and shall also not exceed 3.5% annually, subject to approval by city council resolution. Because of the language of the contract, Council Member David Jones decided to vote yes, he said. I think that if we could go back and renegotiate, then my vote would be different, Jones said before the vote. But because I don't believe we can go back and renegotiate at this point, I don't want to hamper the team and their ability to move forward. Pfeiffer echoed Jones' sentiments, but added that he would like to renegotiate the contract before next year to exclude the minimum service fee from future increases. We do have an obligation, and it's not for us to debate the existing contract, Pfeiffer said after the meeting. I want to stress to city staff the importance of the minimum service fee and let them know that there are still people on council who want to see the fee not be included on increases. Before next year, I would like to renegotiate the contract, Pfeiffer continued. I agree with where John Marriott was coming from, but we can't re renegotiate on the Dias but we need to make a best effort to get that removed out of the increases. Lauren Simpson also voted yes and explained that she did so primarily because of inflation. Simpson stated that the 3.5% increase cap kept the price hike from being a greater burden on residents since inflation has outpaced 3.5% recently. This vote was quite simply a part of the contract to account for inflation, Simpson said.
The city team negotiated rates back in 2019, and those were locked in for the first two years of the program, July 2021-23. The contract stipulated that after two years, rates could be raised to account for inflation, but we thankfully included a cap of 3.5% to any raise. We wouldn't have known it back in 2019, but including that cap now seems a brilliant foresight. This capped raise is far below what actual inflation has been. Simpson continued, I'm thrilled our Vadans will continue to save money because of the thoughtful negotiations led by our city team. In June 2020, Council approved a single-hauler trash service contract with Republic Services by a tightly contested 4-3 vote. Current Council members Lauren Simpson and Bob Pfeiffer voted yes, along with former City Council members Nancy Ford and Dot Miller. Council members David Jones, John Marriott, and Mark Williams voted against the contract at that time. Following the vote, a recall attempt was made to remove the assenting majority from office. The recall attempt failed due to the organizer's inability to secure enough signatures by the filing deadline. Simpson and Marriott are both vying for a chance to be mayor in November's election, as Williams is term limited. Pfeiffer is seeking re-election to the city council as well. Lisa Ferret and Randy Mormon have two more years on their terms, and Jones is not seeking re-election. Increased fees effective August 1st. $20.34 for a 95-gallon cart and 95-gallon recycling cart. $16.06 for a 65-gallon cart and 95-gallon recycling cart. $11.79 for a 35-gallon cart and a 95-gallon recycling cart. $5.28 for minimum service. We Ridge Farmer's Market, an incubator for local small businesses. By Joe Davis. The spot nestled into the corner of Depew and 29th Streets in Wheat Ridge comes alive on Wednesday nights. It's the Wheat Ridge Farmer's Market, and it's created by sisters and co-owners of Wheat Ridge Poultry and Meats, Heidi McCarty and Jessica Bobitsky. What began as a post-COVID attempt to bring the community back to eating and buying local has become so much more. The sisters say that they have always advocated for small businesses. Quote, since we've owned Wheat Ridge Poultry and Meats, we try to support as many local products, producers, and processors as we can, Bobitsky explained. COVID really brought the need for a market home for them, according to Bobitsky. After COVID, we really saw the need for local food producers, and so we applied for grants, Bobitsky said, adding that Wheat Ridge hasn't had a farmer's market in years. And so we wanted to just bring back the farmer's market to Wheat Ridge as well, Bobitsky said. The results was a market on a property that the sisters already owned in the heart of the community they wanted to serve. They sought and acquired grant funding to help keep the costs to producers down. This allows the market to give producers an opportunity to open a space at the market for a $10 fee that covers the entire season. Bobitsky explained that they wanted to also support new producers. When you're starting out as a small producer, it's very difficult to go and be in a farmer's market, Bobitsky explained. She said, this is tough. When they're charging you several hundred dollars just to be in the market, and then 10 to 20% of your sales has to go back to that farmer's market. Bobitsky understands that farmers 
markets are businesses. But she says that model excludes a lot of small producers. The market they created has evolved into an incubator of sorts. Vendors find that the space is more conducive to sharing information and collaboration. The community also provides traffic and space to build skills. The farmer's market vendors are happy that they have such a communal space for their businesses. 12-year-old Leela Narasi of Lilacs Designs is one of the kid vendors. She found the market by word of mouth and decided to give it a try. Narasi said she receives a lot of knowledge from other vendors, and Narasi's mom, Casey, called the market a learning experience. The Colorado State University Extension Office Master Gardener, Nate Guckner, was there to promote classes and to reach out to the Wheat Ridge community. Sherry Juarez, also of the Extension Office, explained that the market allows them a chance to connect with the Wheat Ridge community. Emily Young, the owner of the Purple Dragon, a candy and sweets producer, called the farmer's market, quote, a good starter market. She described the affordable booth fee and the traffic from the community as the quality she loves the most. Bringing the community together to collaborate, train young entrepreneurs, and promote local producers is only part of the market's mission, according to Bobitsky. I think that we have to change the view of the community as to why we need a shop to shop local, she said. I mean, people have a need to really evaluate their spending, their food dollars. She added that local food and art help the producers and the buyers in the long run. Bobitsky said the market is her vision. She wrote the plans and grants, but McCarty runs the team on the ground, manages the vendors, and coordinates everything at the markets. McCarty is the one who does the groundwork to make the market happen. I just kind of gave my overall vision to Heidi and the team, Bobitsky said, and they're the ones that kind of went forward with it. The nice thing about us is we work really well together, and we are kind of like a small family. We all just do what's going to get done. Bobitsky hopes that the market grows even larger, bringing more local producers together with people looking to shop locally. I know Heidi says she always wants the market to become like Pearl Street Market, Bobitsky said, but really would like to keep the market free. And I'd love it if we do expand it. We always joke that we're going to take over all of Depew Street so that we can just continue to have more and more vendors show up in their neighborhood. Above all, the sisters want the market to fully benefit the local producers starting there. I really would like to see these vendors to see their businesses grow, Bobitsky said. The Wheat Ridge Farmer's Market is from 5 to 7 p.m. every Wednesday through September at Wheat Ridge Poultry and Meats on 29th and Depew Streets. For more information, check out the website, wheatridgepoultry.com. Jeffco's new I Voted sticker, A Reminder to Prepare for Election Season by Joe Davis. Jefferson County has a new sticker to show that you've done your civic duty. The new I Voted sticker design is out, and it reflects Jeffco's beautiful sunsets and the foothills and features she, the classic I Voted slogan in both English and Spanish. Everyone will have access to the sticker, even those who voted by mail. The sticker will be included inside each ballot mailed in Jeffco in October for the November 7th elections. 
According to Jeffco clerk and recorder Amanda Gonzalez, the sticker holds a few different symbols of the county's progress. The I Voted sticker has always been a symbol of hope and excitement about using our voice to affect political change, Gonzalez said. I'm excited to have some Jeffco-specific flair in this year's sticker and to feature both English and Spanish text, which is more inclusive, just like Jeffco aims to be. The sticker design release is a sign that voting season is approaching. Here's some information about Gonzalez and the clerk's office that you should know. Ballot box and voting locations are live. Jefferson County's website now has an updated map of the places where you can cast your ballot. Jeffco has 40 drop boxes available throughout the county, and they are open October 16th. The boxes are open 24 hours a day through 7 p.m. election night. There are six voter service and polling center locations in Jeffco. Five of them open October 30th, and the one at the Colorado School of Mines opens on November 6th. In addition to casting a vote, you can drop off a ballot, replace a ballot, register to vote, update your registration, and even find an ADA-accessible voting machine. For more, find more information, a service and polling location, or your ballot box online. Jeffco still needs election judges. The clerk and recorder's office is still seeking election judges for the November elections. They encourage every Jeffco resident age 16 and over who is also registered to vote to apply. It's a paid job that would make an interesting resume builder for young people. You can find more information about the position and the application on the Jefferson County Elections webpage. Sign up for ballot tracks now. You can sign up for ballot tracks, the mail ballot locator and notification system now for the November election. The system will send messages by email, phone, or text about your ballot when it's received and when you should receive it. Ballot Tracks does not update your voter registration. You must do that at GoVoteColorado.gov. Sign up to track your ballot now before the bustle of the voting season and for parents back to school season. Sign up for Ballot Tracks on the Jeffco Elections webpage. Read up on voting security and more. Jefferson County offers a look at the security and safeguards taken to ensure that your ballot is protected. There are infographics, videos, and more. The county also created a list of key dates for election season. For example, the military and overseas ballots will be mailed on September 23rd. They update the information regularly, so check back if you are interested in pre-election equipment testing dates or post-election audit dates. Stay connected to the Jeffco elections processes, dates, and more by checking out the county elections webpage. Local voices, housing advocates, budget cuts could cause more homelessness by Eric Galatas, Public News Service. Colorado's minimum wage workers would have to work 94 hours per week to afford a modest two-bedroom apartment, according to a new report. Even after a deal was struck to avoid a default on the nation's bills, Congress is still moving to cut roughly 22% from the U.S. Housing and Urban Development's budget. Kathy Alderman, Chief Community 
chief communications and public policy officer at the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, said cuts to affordable housing and rental assistance programs would be devastating for the nation's most vulnerable populations. If that happens, almost a million households that are currently receiving rental assistance could lose that rental assistance at a time when housing costs are increasing. Alderman pointed out, it's likely that those households would fall into homelessness, end quote. The GOP-controlled House of Representatives passed legislation in April calling for across-the-board cuts to non-military spending, which the Biden administration estimates would result in lost rental assistance for 10,000 Colorado families, including older adults, people with disabilities, and families with children. Families of color have long faced discriminatory housing policies dating to soldiers returning from World War II being denied down payments under the GI Bill and being denied mortgages in certain neighborhoods. Alderman pointed out such families would also take the biggest hit if Congress succeeds in cutting housing assistance now. Those households are going to be at much greater risk of falling into housing insecurity, Alderman emphasized and particularly homelessness at a time when the black and Native American populations are already disproportionately represented in the households experiencing homelessness. The National Low-Income Housing Coalition report ranked Colorado the eighth least affordable state in the nation for housing. Alderman argued the best and most efficient use for, of tax dollars from HUD Proposition 123 funding and other recent affordable housing policies is to invest in solutions for the lowest income households with the greatest need. If we don't stabilize those individuals, they will fall into the cycle of homelessness, Alderman continued. They will draw down more resources because it is much more expensive to be in the cycle of homelessness than it is to stay stably housed. This public news service story via the Associated Press story share of which Colorado Community Media is a member. Why Blind Historian Tells the Stories of the Blind Peggy Chong Describes What Motivates Her by Teddy Jacobson It only takes an introduction and a few minutes of talking with historian Peggy Chong to learn something new. Chong, also known as the Blind History Lady, can easily rattle off countless names and stories of blind people throughout history. For instance, you may know Stevie Wonder, but you probably don't know Governor Elias Ammons. Chong has researched the stories of the blind for over three decades. She excitedly shares their biographies with anyone willing to listen, primarily through a monthly email list. Quote, People often find the stories hard to believe, that there's something special about these blind people, Chong said. If you read on, you do find that there was something special about them because they just never quit. Chong, who lives in Aurora, was blind, born blind into a family that understood her struggles. Three of her four sisters and her mother were also born blind. Chong said the support and connection she received from her family is rare for the majority of blind people. Everything you do feels like you're reinventing the wheel, Chong said, and you may not have a community around you to help you not feel that way. Almost 8% of the U.S. population are visually impaired in some way, 
according to Georgetown University's Health Policy Institute. Just over 4 million Americans aged 16 to 64 have a visual disability, and another 3 million people 65 years old and older have one, according to the National Federation of the Blind. Chong said most people go blind later in life due to health issues or injuries. She said it is easy for people to lose faith in their abilities because of a stigma about what blind people can do. Too often we're told that a blind person can't do that, but blind people throughout the years have accomplished so much in their work, Chong said. The main stories she tells involve the jobs and work that blind people have had over the years. Over 70% of potentially employable adults with a vision disability in the United States do not have full-time jobs, according to Cornell University's U.S. Disability Statistics. Chong said sharing stories of blind people inspires people today to work the jobs that they want to do in spite of the adversary. For example, Chong said most Coloradans don't know the state had a blind governor. Elias Ammons was the 19th governor of the state, serving from 1913 to 1915. Although he had some vision, Chong said, it was not enough to read or recognize people across the room. The irony of some of the discrimination is unbelievable when you find out what these blind people have accomplished later in their lives, she said. Chong moved to the state five years ago where she almost immediately started searching through the records of the Colorado Center for the Blind Basement. She said she discovered records dating back more than 100 years. She led the effort to digitize and transcribe the pages for blind people to read through optical character recognition, which is a system that scans printed text so that it can be spoken in synthetic speech or saved to a computer file. The project started four years ago, and Chong said she is almost done putting the files on the Colorado Virtual Library website. President of the National Federation of the Blind of Colorado's Jessica Beecham said Chong's work is vital for showing other blind people their rich history is out there and worth sharing. As a blind person, I never knew our history, Beecham said in a press release. I, also th I thought we as blind people were always the first to do or try anything. That is so lonely. But through her research, I and thousands more are learning that we have broad shoulders of our blind ancestors to stand on, inspiring us to climb higher and reach further. Chong won the Jacob Bulletin Award at the annual convention of the National Federation of the Blind in Houston, Texas, earlier this month. The award comes with a five with five thousand dollars to help her advance her research into the history of the blind of the United States. The Dr. Jacob Bulletin Awards honor the indiv individuals and organizations that are a positive force in the lives of blind people. The namesake of the award. Bulletin, 1888-1924, is hailed as the world's first physician who was blind from birth. Each year, the National Federation of the Blind presents the awards at its annual convention. This is the second time she received this award for her work, the first coming in 2018. Her new project will take her to the Library of Congress Archives in Washington, D.C., where she will research and tell the history of an awards program through the Harmon Foundation from 1928 to 1932. 
This award means a lot to me, Chong stated. It represents the validation by my peers that my work to uncover the lost history of our blind ancestors is important. To join Chong's monthly email list, send an email to theblindhistorylady at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Brewability's Cleanish Comedy Showcase, Inclusive Fun for Everyone, by Elizabeth Monahan. From Denverite, I'll be reading Mike Johnston Explains Why Denver Homeless Sweeps Resume with No Housing Offers, by Kyle Harris. And With Rainfall Up, Denver Water Use is Down, by Rebecca Tauber. From Westward, I'll be reading like a Bross, Westward Reporter Tackles the Decalibron Loop, which is finally open, by Benito El Kelty. And four, Thief Posing as Golfer Wanted for Stealing Golf Bags Outside Denver Clubhouses, by Chris Perez. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Brewability's Cleanish Comedy Showcase, Inclusive Fun for Everyone by Elizabeth Monahan. Brewability is an Inglewood, Colorado-based brewery and pizzeria where anyone, including individuals with disabilities, can eat and work. Since its inception in 2016, the establishment has received media coverage from the likes of Colorado Public Radio and Westward, as well as national and international media outlets like the BBC, Forbes, and LA Times. Tiffany Fixter, who launched Brewability and Pizza Ability, went from special education teacher to business owner. While her restaurant is known for its made-to-order pizza and craft beer, Brewability has become a popular spot because it's a safe and inclusive space. It's also a welcoming venue for community gatherings and free events, including drag bingo, goat yoga, book signings, and trivia nights. Recently, Brewability added to its roster of events with its Cleanish Comedy Showcase. The idea for the comedy show came from Denver-based comic Jennifer Sutherland, who has been a regular at Brewability since it opened its South Broadway location. Brewability has been my local hangout for years, said Sutherland. I knew there were events, but I wasn't sure if they offered an open mic night, and asked Tiffany. She told me a story about one open mic night they hosted where someone told a hurtful joke. That's when I suggested a comedy showcase so I could steer the comics in the right direction. Fixter liked Sutherland's idea and agreed to try a couple of approaches before including the showcase as a recurring event. According to Sutherland, the first comedy showcase was more of a talent show for brewability employees. She then began to reach out to local comics whose work she enjoyed. In February of this year, Sutherland hosted the first monthly Cleanish Comedy Showcase, and so far, comedians have eagerly accepted invitations, or they have asked Sutherland if they could participate. Lisa Lane, who has done stand-up comedy for about seven years, is among those who contacted Sutherland directly. 
I saw my comedy friend Jennifer promoting the show on social media, loved the idea, and reached out to her for a spot, she said. Lane said she appreciated that the showcase focused on clean comedy and saw it as an opportunity to build an inclusive set that appeals to a variety of audiences. I've been actively working this year on developing my clean material because when something is funny without being dirty to a broad spectrum of people, I know it's a really good joke, said Lane. Veteran comic Ralph Great, who was a writer for comedian George Wallace and open for both the OJs and the Isley Brothers, accepted Sutherland's invitation to perform at Brewability because he has experienced a dearth of available opportunities for clean, clever comedians in Denver, especially if they're black. People expect the same type of racial, vulgar material that they see most black comics doing on social media, Great said. The Cleanish Comedy Showcase was the perfect chance for Great to get paid to perform in a venue that offers comedy the entire family can enjoy. When Sutherland asked comedian Jake Cameron if he would participate in the showcase, he said yes, even though he wasn't familiar with the venue. I had no idea that brewability was such an inclusive place and employed people all across the neurological spectrum, said Cambron. I'm autistic, so it instantly put me at ease and let me know what kind of material would be appropriate for the audience. Given the opportunity to return to the showcase, Cameron said he would do so in a heartbeat. And to anyone who isn't sure what to expect, Cameron said people should approach the show with an open and kind heart. They should see the show because it's a joy to see so many neurodiverse people able to come together and laugh in a positive environment. It's definitely the kind of place where you leave your poor attitude at the door, he said. According to Sutherland, Brewability employee Michael Newland, who participates in almost every showcase, is a crowd pleaser. For his set, Newland draws from his repertoire of over 400 impressions, including Donald Duck, Oscar the Grouch, and Grover. Newland, who started doing impressions as a hobby, said he likes getting a chance to make people happy and smile. Being on stage is a great, great thing, said Newland. It makes me feel proud to do something like this. Sutherland says she's excited to see how well the Cleanish Comedy Showcase is taking off, but it's the reaction of her fellow comics who point to why Sutherland's idea is a win for the comics and audience alike. Brewability offers great food and drink, loving service, and brilliant adaptations that make the experience fun and accessible for everyone, Lisa Lane said. Sharing the stage with comics and performing for an audience of various abilities is thrilling. When we laugh together, we seem far more alike than different. The Cleanish Comedy Showcase takes place on the first Wednesday of the month at Brewability, 3445 South Broadway. Tickets are free, but donations are appreciated. For more information on Brewability, Cleanish Comedy Showcase, or other upcoming events, visit brew-ability.com. The next two articles are from Denverite. Mike Johnston explains why Denver homeless sweeps resume with no housing offers by Kyle Harris. Mike Johnston's administration will conduct its first encampment cleanup Friday. Johnston had temporarily halted encampment sweeps while his administration transitioned into office, despite widely reported yet unfounded rumors that he had ended the practice. 
Friday's sweep will take place in the area between Stout Street, 22nd Street, California Street, and Park Avenue West. The Department of Transportation and Infrastructure, the Department of Health and Environment, and Denver Police will carry out the work. The justification for the forced removal of people living in the encampments is the need to clean up a rat infestation that is creating health risks for those living there, Johnston said. Advocates with the House Keys Action Network Denver said the rats have found an ideal habitat between the rocks that property owners have placed along the street to make it harder to set a tent up there. There have been only 17 sweeps in the name of public health since 2019, and just two since 2021, according to the data from the Department of Public Health and Environment. Most of the regular cleanups have been to address encumbrances in the public right-of-way and have been led by the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure. During the election, Johnston said every encampment cleanup would come with the promise of housing. That's not the case this time, and he's not trying to hide that. Sweeping encampments may help do away with the rats, but it does not help people living on the streets. But before Johnston can solve homelessness, he said, he needs to build housing, which his administration is working on. In the meantime, he contended, the sweeps are necessary for public health. As a solution, it doesn't work, Johnston said. It just means you're chasing people off one block and they end up on another block. And so that's why our real intentional focus has been access to housing and to shelter that is dignified and stable and secure. He referred to the sweeps as displacement, echoing homeless advocates who refer to them as traumatic displacement. As the city did under former Mayor Michael Hancock, workers will offer unhoused people space in group shelters, the same shelters that couples, people with pets, and those who find group living traumatizing have said don't work for them. People experiencing homelessness requested that Johnston visit the forced cleanups to understand the harm that is perpetrated by the city. He said he will not be present on Friday, but unlike Hancock, he pledged to visit every encampment the city sweeps either before or during the sweep. We are going to make sure we have eyes on all steps of the process to get feedback and to make sure we think it works in correspondence with our values, which are treating every Denver resident with dignity and respect, he said. Outreach workers from the Headwaters Protectors Group, founded by former mayoral candidate Ian Thomas to FOIA, have been meeting with people in the soon-to-close encampment on behalf of the city. Workers have also been passing out a friendly letter to people at the encampment. The message explains the state of emergency Johnston declared on his first day in office, the city's efforts to house 1,000 people by the end of the year, a justification for the sweep and the city's long-term plan to help people transition into housing. The city and county of Denver has launched an effort to bring 1,000 Denverites safely indoors from the streets and permanently close encampments by the end of this year, the letter states. In the coming months, Outreach teams will be working to conduct housing assessments while a, while a coalition of partners work to make supportive housing, rapid rehousing, hotel rooms, and micro-community units available to help you transition from the streets. The letter goes on to explain the new units are in the development process and that the city is trying to keep both encampments and neighborhoods healthy, safe, and clean through outreach and trash collection efforts. However, in cases where the public right-of-way is blocked or where there are urgent health and safety risks, 
Encampments still need to be addressed, the letter continues. City staffers and community outreach teams will conduct housing assessments, offer health services and storage, collect trash, and help people move from the shuttered encampment elsewhere. Not everybody's pleased with the plan. Anyone who thinks doing housing assessments will get these folks housing in the next week is delusional, noted Hand in a statement. Without creating more real housing, assessments will not lead to camp residents having housing to move to when a camp is swept. Here's the timeline. July 28th. The encampment received trash services and a closure posting, the same sort of sternly written warning issued in the Hancock era, according to the letter to residents. July 30th, the encampment received help with cleanup. July 31st, the Department of Housing Stability conducted outreach. August 1st through August 3rd, the Department of Public Health and Environment's mobile clinic, the Wellness Winnie, is showing up to the site to offer services. August 4th, the city will close the encampment, which will include removing people, discarding trash, and temporarily fencing off the area. The area will remain closed indefinitely while city employees clean up the block and ensure it is safe again. People's confiscated property will be temporarily stored at 1449 Galapagos Street for 30 days, and they can claim their belongings without fear of arrest, according to the notice posted near the encampment. If belongings aren't reclaimed, they will be taken to a different storage location for another 30 days. We wish we had a housing unit available to help you move into today, but please know that we will continue working tirelessly towards that goal in the months ahead the letter from the city states. In the meantime, we ask for your partnership by working with outreach teams on housing assessments, keeping your encampments clean, and promoting safety throughout the community. With rainfall up, Denver water use is down by Rebecca Tauber. The rainiest June in Denver since the 1880s, golf ball-sized hail, tornadoes, flooding, there is no shortage of records and bizarre weather events the Denver metro area has faced this rainy spring and summer. Above average rainfall also means that Denverites are using less water than usual for things like lawns and gardens. According to Denver Water, residents used 37% less water in June compared to average use from 1970 to 2022. While July's rainfall did not break records, Denver Water spokesperson Jimmy Luthie said Denverites used 18% less water this July compared to the past five Julys. Our customers' demand with water levels have been pretty low this year, and it really is a testament to our customers and how they value water and how they recognize, when it's wet out, I don't need to water as much, Luthi said. Coloradans are used to conserving water because of drought conditions, but at the beginning of July, the entire state was drought-free for the first time since 2019. While the southwest portion of the state now has some drought, Denver is still in the clear. Luthi said that the high levels of rainfall also mean Denver water has filled all the large reservoirs in the area. That's our goal every year, he said. A lot of our water supply comes in the form of snow melts in the mountains, so we definitely hope for snowy winters, but having this much rain throughout the spring and summer is only a good thing. But the question is how long things will last. With climate change threatening the Colorado River, a major water source across the west, 
there are bigger concerns about water access long term. Luthi cautioned against thinking this summer's rainfall will alleviate drought in Colorado forever. He said Denver water relies on heavy rainfall seasons to store water and protect against drier years. It's one year, and it's something that we can't always count on, he said. It's important for all of our customers to always be looking at efficient ways to use their water all year long. We can't always count on really wet years like this or really big snowy winters. The following articles are from Westward. Like a Bross, Westward reporter tackles the Decalibron Loop, which is finally open, by Benito L. Kelty. Standing nearly 14,000 feet up on Mount Democrat, exhausted, with my legs feeling like jello and lungs pleading for oxygen, I wondered if I really even wanted to summit the 14er's menacing mountain face. My old high school buddy, Kadeen Rivas, was feeling the same way. Are you sure? Kadeen asked me about our last leg of climbing as he stood at the saddle between Democrat and its slightly taller neighbor, Mount Cameron. Turning back would mean failing to complete Colorado's famous Decalibron Loop, which finally reopened on Friday, July 28th, after months of being shuttered. Hikers have been champing at the bit to get back on top of Mounts Democrat, Cameron, Lincoln, and Bross, hence the name Decalibron, ever since the challenging and scenic quartet of climbs was shut down by property owner John Reber back in March. The decision came after Colorado lawmakers rejected a bill that would have protected landowners from potential lawsuits being filed by adventurers who get hurt while trekking in dangerous areas, such as those with abandoned mines. Reber was worried that the mine shafts on his private property, including ones he possibly didn't know about, would leave him vulnerable to legal buzzards looking to bankrupt him. When Kadeen and I went to check out the newly reopened Decalibron Loop on Saturday, July 28th, one of the first things we noticed were the wooden mouths of old mine shafts dotting the faces of each 14er. We had only planned to reach one summit that day, but knowing that access to the trail could be cut off again at some point, and that it might be more crowded if we returned at a later date, gave us some extra motivation. Yeah, let's do it, I said. To which Kadeen replied, shit, before continuing our ascent. The Decalibron Loop, located near the town of Alma, just about two hours of driving from Denver, is a seven-mile trail that was tied with Mount Elbert, the state's tallest peak, for the third most hiked trail of 2022. Around 21,000 people hiked to one of the four peaks that year. That was a 200% surge from what the loop saw in 2021, according to an annual report from the Colorado 14ers Initiative. Signs, discolored runoff, and collapsed wooden beams are what currently give away the location of many of the mines that concern Reber, a retired business executive who bought the peaks knowing that they were rich once in gold and silver, according to the Washington Post. Closer to the summit of Mount Bross, which is still off-limits because of the danger threat, the mine shafts look as if they are still open, but the rest of what we found on the ridges and faces of the mountain had red and white signs that read, No Trespassing. Kadeen and I had settled for shorter hikes up the smaller Hoosier Ridge, across State Highway 9 from the Decalibron Peaks, when we couldn't summit the best peaks of the Mosquito Range. Then there was the fact that we had to reserve parking to hike the nearby Quandry Peak. 
But Saturday was different. At around 13,000 feet, on our way up the face of Bross, we began seeing hikers who started to pass us on their way down. We greeted each of the adventurers and asked them how the trip to the top was. Once five of them had passed, including one woman coming down from the summit of Mount Bross, Gadine and I had seen enough. I think 14ers should be open to the public, the woman commented, giving us renegades the spark and motivation we needed to tackle Mount Bross, despite the closure. The Bross shutdown also stems from Reber's response to the failed lawsuit protection bid, which came about after bicyclist James Nelson won a $7.3 million lawsuit in 2019. Nelson had fought for 11 years against the military branch after riding into a sinkhole at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. The verdict would ultimately scare other landowners of popular recreation destinations, including the owner of Mount Lindsay near the Great Sand Dunes, into limiting access to their private property to avoid costly liability. The Calibron-like hikers are required to start their journey at the Kite Lake Trailhead, which sits at 12,000 feet in a verdant valley that opens to the south to let waters run down a clear, quiet creek toward Alma. The parking lot at Kite Lake was full with a few dozen cars as Kadeen and I prepared to make our climb. We showed up a few minutes before 7.30 a.m., paid the $8 fee. Kadeen only had a $20 bill on him, but he happily made a donation to the U.S. Forest Service and found a lucky lone parking spot near the trailhead. Hikers start off by crossing the creek and walking to an area that offers two paths, one that takes you up to the saddle between Mount Democrat and Mount Cameron, and another that takes you along the western face of Mount Bross. A sign at the entrance stated clearly that the way toward Mount Democrat and Mount Lincoln, which also takes you to Mount Cameron, was open, but that Mount Bross was still closed. We took the way up to Mount Bross with the intention of swinging left toward Lincoln instead of summiting the Forbidden Peak. The hike was smooth for the first three or four hundred feet, with a stream and small waterfall accompanying us along our way until we were about 13,000 feet up, where the real fun begins. The ground in this area is mostly loose rocks and occasional wildflowers. When we left Bross to hit Mount Lincoln, we saw other hikers who looked to be about college age coming up in the opposite direction. From the peak of Mount Lincoln, we saw lines of hikers who looked like ants marching on Bross's wide-open summit. Mount Lincoln appeared to be the most popular attraction over the weekend, despite its peak offering the least amount of hikeable space compared with the other three mountains. Once we had summited Mount Bross and Lincoln, Kadeen and I felt we had gone high enough that Mount Cameron would be a straight shot of walking, without having to climb much more. After chewing down some energy bars, we arrived on the almost flat, reddish-orange summit of Mount Cameron just before noon. We peered out at the descent toward Mount Democrat and the steep rise to its peak, and pondered the hell we were about to put ourselves through. After passing by the closed mine on the saddle between Mount Cameron and Mount Democrat, we encountered a couple with two ferrets who asked if I could take their photo, which I did, obviously. Then, with almost no energy left, we proceeded to hike up the rocky face of Mount Democrat. At its peak, Kadeen and I looked around and saw rain clouds on all sides of us. Their wisps danced over the peaks on other ranges around us, and we sat there for a moment, regaining our strength for the way down, 
and enjoying the sights of curious marmots, along with a deep silence far from the city. We did it, I told Gadeen. Now we can tell everyone about it. As we limped back down, I splashed my sunburned face with water from a stream and tried bringing myself back to reality. The prospect of cold beers and cheesecakes at Crossroads Pub and Grill in Pine Junction weighed heavily on my mind. A male hiker who chatted us up on his descent summed up our day and decision to ignore the Mount Bros closure signs and body fatigue perfectly. They can find me or whatever. I don't care, he said. It's just so beautiful up here. Four. Thief posing as golfer wanted for stealing golf bags outside Denver clubhouses by Chris Perez. Is nothing sacred? Someone has been going around Denver posing as a golfer and stealing golf bags from the bag drop areas in front of clubhouses with at least six courses targeted in recent weeks, according to city officials. The male suspect has been dressed head to toe in golf gear for his heists, which have gone down at the Willis Case Golf Course, Kennedy Golf Course, Welshire Golf Course, Fox Hollow Golf Course, Broken Tee Golf Course, and Legacy Ridge Golf Course. It's sad, said Susie Helmerich, director of pro shop operations for the city and county of Denver. It's one person who's stealing them. He looks like your typical golfer. He's wearing golf clothes in all the instances we've seen. Golf hat, khaki shorts, etc. He just pulls up to the front of the clubhouse, then either walks around the clubhouse, or he just grabs a bag that might be sitting out front and drives off. According to Helmerich, multiple bags have been stolen since the start of summer from bag drop areas, the spots where golfers typically leave their clubs as they check in for their tee times or visit the pro shop. Golfers do it all the time, and you don't think twice about it, Helmerich said. We all have just left our clubs thinking they're safe and that everything's okay. And then you come out and they're gone. Describing the dapper delinquent's tactics, Helmerich tells Westward, he's taking clubs from the front, taking clubs off of carts. He has a dark-colored Nissan Pathfinder SUV with a bunch of ladders on the top of it. We have him on our surveillance cameras and we have his license plates. We have filed police reports in all of the different jurisdictions, and he just hasn't been caught yet. Through a spokesperson, the Denver Police Department confirms that it is investigating multiple thefts at golf courses across the Mile High City, including three run by Parks and Recreation, Willis Case, Kennedy, and Wilshire. Denver Police is aware of these thefts and actively investigating, the spokesperson adds. No arrests have been made at this time. As these cases are under investigation, video is not available at this time. Anyone with information is asked to call Crime Stoppers. On Monday, July 31st, the social media team for Denver Golf sent out notices informing the public about the golf bag thief and what to do moving forward. You just have to be mindful of your stuff, Helmerich says. I think that goes for anything, anywhere, anytime these days. Parks and Rec have been dealing with lots of bad behavior at city-run facilities in recent weeks and months, ranging from several instances of vandalism to the theft of a digital swim clock at the Congress Park pool. It's sad at this time where we have these individuals that do not value our park system, said Scott Gilmore, Deputy Executive Director of Parks and Rec, after the clock was swiped. It has since been recovered, and no charges are being filed against the juveniles responsible. 
The golf bag heists add to the challenges that Parks and Recs is currently facing, including Denver's water fountain debacle, in which numerous water fountains have been broken by vandals or shut down because of staff shortages and a major shutdown of public bathrooms, also because of vandalism. In mid-July, the department reported that someone had stolen all of the copper tubing from the Ruby Hill Park bathrooms. Over the past month, there have been at least 10 portable toilets in parks lost to 